in the wake of our existence, in our parades and in our dances. Touch and see and behold the wisdom of the party world. Essential in our lifetime and irresistible in our touch. With great spirits proclaiming that capitalism is indeed organized crime and we're all the victims. This next one is called Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 26 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. So uh, as, as Team K listeners know, music has, from the beginning, been a core part of the TMK ethos, whether it's the, you know, the, the awesome original beats and remixes that Jeremy produces for each episode, uh, or as we talked about in our first premium episode on TMK Origins, um, the huge influence that music has had on our own lives, our background, and our thinking about social and political issues. So with this episode, we want to dig even further into that kind of cultural and technological politics in music, the music industry, countercultures more broadly. Um, so to join us on this journey into sound, we've got... Uh, Alexander Billet here with us, who's an editor at Locus Review and a frequent contributor to Jacobin, whose work focuses on the intersection of art, music, and politics, writes a lot of really interesting essays um, in Jacobin around like how different kind of genres and movements in music, whether it's folk or punk or hip hop, um, are kind of emerging from particular material conditions and responding to those material conditions. So thanks for joining us, Alex. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so I, to, to begin the episode, um, I think we're going to go through Obama's recent playlist of memorable songs from his administration and explain why each one is meaningful for us. Um, Ed, would you like to start? <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> You oh, all did I... not warn me. <laughs> 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 I am being I... blindsided here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I think my favorite uh, choice by Obama's um, consultants for this playlist is it definitely um, it's got to be I don't know it's somewhere between the Eminem "Lose Yourself" and Bob Dylan "The Times They Are Changing." Um, the Eminem Lose Yourself was the one that jumped out to me. <laughs> oh my god. That's just him. It's like Obama surrounded with like in the command screen, surrounded by like a thousand images of drones, and he's just like just he's just blasting it as he's approving each strike. <laughs> He, he's he, he's playing rap god, but he's like <laughs> mouthing drone god over um, it. Yeah, I'm beginning to feel like a war criminal or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
My rapping skills are terrible. That, that's one thing I can't do is rap. Brooks and Dunn is what got me. It's like this totally trying to pander to that country liberal that drives an $80,000 pickup truck. Yeah, yeah. The thing about Brooks and Dunn is that also they, they have, um, you know, they have also have a history of flirtation with pretty right-wing politics. So I, I, there's this... Yeah, I, I, I spoke about this on uh, Citations Needed, where the, this, um, the type of country that's put out there so much is meant to cater both by the right wing and liberals to a version of the white working class that simply doesn't exist. Um, you know, the, the whole idea of that just really undermines it. But, uh, God. Yeah, so if... I, I agree that I think probably Obama putting that on there was a lot of a pander, was uh, uh, for the most part. Shuja Hader wrote something, uh, I guess it was maybe about a year ago, on the, Obama's playlists, uh, which he seems to love to release. Like, he's got a really interesting PR strategy here, right? This horde, which in some ways goes back to the whole, um, if you remember when he was running for president originally, back in 2018, or uh, um, 2008, um, you know, the, the big deal that was made about the fact that he listened to Jay-Z on his iPod. Remember those iPods? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> going all the way back to that. He's, he's always had a very, he's been savvier really than any other previous, uh, previous presidential candidate or previous president in using pop music to sort of solidify his, uh, this notion that he's um, at once very culturally erudite, but also just like the rest of us. Um, and so I, half of the songs on these playlists, I'm almost entirely certain he doesn't listen to on any kind of regular basis. They're, they're entirely picked by, by people around him. I, I feel fairly certain about that. Um, you know. Yeah, that's something I was curious about. You know, like you said, uh, he is kind of alone in uh, using music as a way to really bolster the rhetoric and, 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 and establish it as a bulwark against the reality of his presidency. At the same time, I've seen discussions where it's like, oh, well, since he's the only one doing it, he must be involved in it because the people who are handpicking it, wouldn't they also be providing this service for um, other candidates or other people who don't seem to have be taking? But at the same time, like, I, I think there is credence to what you were saying and that like he specifically is more cognizant of this stuff and it makes sense that the people around him are also going to be people who like he can have conversations with and they can be like yeah let's make this happen let's do a playlist uh to one serve as like a really smart marketing thing for our campaign but also just because like that's the image i have or maybe that's part of the um that's part of what sells or, you know, whatever the, the, the way that they talk about it internally might be to justify using music in a specific way. Yeah, I mean, I, I reckon so. I mean, we're, we're at a moment, I, I find it really helpful to, to think of, um, to reference the situationists uh, around this type of stuff. Like, we are in the, the degree to which we live in the, the society of the spectacle, the way in which the spectacular has been redoubled and redoubled and redoubled and made so self-referential um, and become so much more full spectrum in our lives um, is, well, there you have it. I mean, it's the kind of thing that Guy Debord and probably the rest of them really couldn't have fully imagined or really could only have imagined as opposed to actually, to actually uh, uh, wrap their heads around. 
Um, and the Obama playlists are part of that. It's, it's that idea, this flattening of history and therefore our divorcing us from history, the use of pop culture to create that sort of full spectrum instrumentalization of, 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 human, uh, of human creativity and of uh, uh, human ingenuity and our, our ability to participate in history. Um, the playlists are absolutely a part of that. And, you know, like when we talk about a media, a media savvy president, um, you know, Obama might be sort of unique in the way that he deploys that. But then, then again, so is Trump. You could argue he's more aggressive about it. He's a lot more direct in the way he, um, he deploys it because he's, you know, he's on Twitter all the fucking time. Yeah, a um, true poster. You know, like, <laughs> Absolutely, like he is, like, oh, good lord! <laughs> no, no, um, nobody, nobody has broken the glass ceiling for shit posting <laughs> like Trump. No, no. dear lord, no, no. Um, but he's still like, like ultimately, uh, you know, there's a lot of differences, but ultimately, it's the same logic in the same way that that, that, that what they are deploying is ultimately the same thing. This sort of. Um, disintegrated and reintegrated spectacle of, of uh, what type of what type of life we have to lead and what type of um, you know what the the use of commodification to be a substitute for actual human connection and actual fulfillment um, giving people the illusion that they have a direct democratic stake in uh, the system as it is because yeah yeah, I, I mean, you know, joking about you know, Obama's playlist, you know, as Ed was saying, it's obviously constructed by this like group of consultants, but it's constructed by a group of like uh, of what, what I'm sure are like marketing consultants, right? It's about how do we market this image to the broad to the lowest common denominator. I think that is a a, a natural link to talking about something like the Spotify rap. The, the Wrapped has like consistently wins um, advertising industry awards like every single year. The people at Spotify are very explicit that this is a marketing and advertising initiative. I mean, the you know um, recently the Spotify's head of consumer and producer marketing um, said that the Wrapped creates the quote creates this FOMO effect that happens and that inherently entices new users to consider Spotify. So they're not even trying to hide that this is, you know, that, that, that this is not some kind of like authentic representation of who you are. They're like, no, this is, this is advertising and, and we're getting everybody involved to do um, free guerrilla marketing for us. Uh, and, and I mean that, that, like this very much plays into um, this kind of like, as, as you called it before we started recording, this kind of Spotifyication or Spotifyification of the music industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, the, the interesting thing about Spotification is that also, I don't think it just applies to music. I think it very much, uh, the way that uh, some cultural theorists are using it right now is just as much to talk about like, uh, you know, these monthly box services and things like that, um, which again present this illusion of, um, you know, fulfillment and everything like that, but ultimately it's just crass consumerism. So you pay a monthly fee, you get these boxes full of useless trinkets, and but somehow it's supposed to be tailored to your personality. Um, so it's very devious and manipulative like that, even as it is, as you said, I think very, uh, very brazen 
in the fact that this is pretty untempered uh, capitalism, but therefore that it, that but at the same time it it's tailored around your identity. It somehow makes you more of a, a fully rounded human subject uh, is really is really quite devious. And I, I think now, how does that apply to the music industry? Well, you know, obviously the music industry is the prime one that Spotify has helped transform. So this idea that you can have the entirety of recorded sound just right at your fingertips, uh, wherever you go, virtually, as long as you have your phone with you. Um, is on the surface of it intensely democratic and intensely empowering, um, except for the fact that really the algorithms and everything like that and the way that Spotify is run has an impact on the types of sounds that, not just the types of sounds that you're subjected to or, or exposed to, um, but they are at the same time uh, the, the way in which they're used, and uh, you know, Mark uh, Mark Fisher uh, in Capitalist Realism talks about sort of the 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 ed iPod, as in iPod Edible, walling up against the social. Um, the way in which, like your own personal playlists, are just that—they're just personalized, they're privatized, and so the the ability for music to become a, a way in which we can connect to each other is severely undermined by that. Um, and that has an impact on the way that we, uh, we, we live our daily lives and the way that we think about music. Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, the, the Spotification, if that's becoming such a behemoth generally in, in cultural capitalism, if you will, as much of the, um, as you can say, in much of cultural studies, you need to like sort of look at, look at what is actually happening in the art world or the music world in this case first. One thing I've really thought is fascinating is, especially with Spotify and the music industry and, 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 the, and our sort of cultural commons, you see really sort of innovative, innovative in the sense of the capitalist uh, techniques that mm -hmm. were previously just reserved for uh, more traditional assets that they would trade. You see like these uh, revenue uh, funds where, or royalty funds where you can buy a share um, and essentially financialize uh, streams or monetary or income streams mm -hmm. from rights and catalogs. Um, you see Spotify mm -hmm. itself, as you said, creating this image that, you know, deference to the algorithm, to submission through like algorithmic management is the way to fully realize and optimize your listening as a human being. And like, and it's really interesting that these financial, the financial prong, and then the attempt to use the algorithm the algorithm is a, like a optimizer to find more profits when it gets harder and harder to find profits. Mm -hmm. It gets wrapped up in like a company that is constantly selling itself as a way for listeners, musicians, culture workers to uh, be better at what they do and make all of us happy when it's just like really like it's better for the shareholders who are what like investment firms 10 cent mm -hmm. uh you know funds, yeah. All of them. yeah morgan stanley yeah. you know like I, what these are people who are mm -hmm. not interested in human beings they're interested except in so far as they can better understand where to uh put the vampire squid and and suck out more profit 
Yeah, and importantly, the success of something like Spotify is not even a technological one because mm-hmm. I mean, if we if we're thinking about the the algorithm, you know, and its personalization and all that, it it, it it's really shitty. Like, it doesn't work well <laughs> at all, right? Like, <laughs> like, so I mean, the 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 innovation of Spotify is not its technology. I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine. Um, who works at a major uh, ad consultancy. And we were talking about after the Wrapped came out and we were like comparing notes about like, you know, what are what what our genres are according to Spotify, what our top listens are and all that. And she was telling me um, that like Spotify is notoriously bad in the ad industry um, as like being really shitty at serving advertisements and personalized ads and all of that to people because it doesn't actually understand its users in any way. Um, Its algorithm, like, you know, you think about the, like, Discover Weekly playlist, you know, your personalized weekly playlist. You know, sometimes you find some some interesting stuff, but that's really just, like, you know, it's almost by chance. I mean, the algorithm is so influenced by, you know, listening to something random and it's, it, it will just feed you the same thing over and over. It's trying to, it's not trying to give you what you want. It's trying to give you what it wants you to want, right? Exactly, exactly. I, I, I find it actually really useful to think about, okay, what would it be like if Spotify were not the player that it actually is, which comes with it. With uh, Jason, you you mentioned just what the uh, you know what, what that actually looks like, like how they mediate what they want you to want is a really really uh, useful way to to look at it. But I think if we if we were to like sort of take Spotify, say Spotify existed, but the only actual actors with it were the listener and the musician or the artist or the people who were involved in making um uh, making the the um making the song making the album making the music if that mediator of spotify weren't there but the technology still were it would be fundamentally different and it would be far more democratic if you think about what a song is when you go to a musical performance um even if you you know pull away all the commercialized dross and everything like that ultimately what you're talking about is a connection between artist and audience that should be a conversation, should be a free-flowing conversation. And if we really wanted to go meta on it, we could talk about how art, as we understand it, as a distinct area of life, is a creation of capitalism. And so, therefore, the artist-audience distinction is um, a false one, ultimately, but we don't need to necessarily go that far. Um, But you think about the democracy of an an audience-art artist relationship, if the hierarchy is stripped away from it, um, then what Spotify is actually doing is not just uh, uh, not just sort of subjugating the listener, but in much of the, they also turn the artists themselves into, into a commodity. Um, one of the main demands of the Justice at Spotify campaign, which I guess we can go ahead and introduce this now, the Justice at Spotify campaign, which is organized by the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, um, is saying that, look, we want the full credits of who worked on this song available on Spotify, which currently they aren't, which invisibilizes like studio technicians um, and as well as a whole list of other people who are involved in the making of a song. Um, and that cheapens the song. It actually cuts at your ability to fully connect with 
wherever the artist's head was at at the time. Um, and this is to say nothing about the fact that the, the artists are actually paid just like fractions of a penny for each play. You know, you need something like 250 plays of a single song to make a dollar off of a song right now. So that's another reason why they're saying like, um, you know, it, it almost seems a parody to say that such a radical, that uh, a penny per play is a radical demand. But right now for, for artists on Spotify, it absolutely is. That's how bad it's gotten. That's how undemocratic and, and um, exploitative Spotify is as a platform. I, I really hope as people listen to this, they, they uh, especially your listeners on Spotify, will uh, um, absolutely uh, uh, relish in the irony of the fact that we are, that, that it's also a main place for, for podcasters to, um, to get heard. Like, that's the thing. It's like being able to envision these platforms as they are actually, if they, are, if they were actually controlled by artists and listeners, if it were a more democratic conversation, I think if you can start to view things in those terms, then it becomes incredibly apparent just how, um, just how exploitative and cutthroat and venal these streaming services can be. The, the real innovation of something like Spotify is the same innovation of all these platforms. And it, it, it's, what it, it's a financial one. It's about striving for monopoly, right? It's not about providing the best personalized algorithm or the best user interface, you know, providing all of the world's music at your fingertips, right? No, what it is about is it's about completely controlling the music industry. And that, that becomes about investment, right? It becomes about investing so much into this one platform that it becomes the monopoly that you have no choice, right? That, or at least you feel like you have no choice outside of it. If you want to listen to music, then you have to do it on Spotify. Um, and that, that means that they don't have to worry about things like having uh, algorithms that are really good or, 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 person or targeted advertising that is really accurate or anything like that. Um, all of those concerns are wiped away um, by achieving monopoly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you make the sausage pretty enough and no one's going to actually ask how it's made. Um, Spotify has always been very good at that. Now, I, I think the, the interesting thing for me is it feels like this year's people's reactions to the wrapped lists is, I wouldn't characterize it as a backlash, but I think it has, it's provoking more of a cynicism this year. Now, maybe that could just be because 2020 has been an absolute hellish year. Um, so people just have a lot more cynicism to spare, but I think there's also a healthy cynicism in people looking at these lists like that. I mean, a lot of people are saying, oh yeah, thanks Spotify. Whereas, um, you know, maybe three years ago, people were a lot more sort of, uh, I don't want to say naive, but uh, hopeful and optimistic about them. Like, wow, this is really cool. Look at all the cool songs I listened to this year. Um, and this year, it's, it doesn't feel like that. People feel a lot more jaded to it. Um, now, how does that connect with some of the ways that, um, say, the, the Justice at Spotify campaign is sort of generating some bad publicity, a bit of a, a black eye for Spotify? I don't know if they're interacting. Um, that uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a worthwhile question, uh, if you ask me. But I think people are starting to become a lot more sort of wise and aware to the way in which Spotify is a factor in our own alienation than we have been um, before. 
Uh, and now, does that mean everyone's going to stop using it? No, I, I, I don't see that necessarily. To me, the, the question about boycotting Spotify is a far less interesting one than the idea of expropriating it. Um, uh, precisely because I do think actually we could probably come up with some better algorithms that were more democratic and actually did um, empower people instead of just give us the illusion of empowerment that actually just instrumentalizes us and turns us into pawns in our own subjugation, if you will. I mean, when you were talking, when you were explaining the justice at Spotify, and, and really it's like the, the bar is so low, right? The, yeah, the bar for right. what justice, quote unquote, at Spotify might look like is so low already um, because Spotify is, you know, it, it's such a perfect alienation machine, right? Like the way you were talking mm -hmm. about how it really is taking every song um, as a as a as a completely alienated commodity in the sense that it's completely separated, it's dehumanized, um, stripped of all of the the workers and labor uh, that went and, and creativity that went into each song. Um, and so it's like, you know, so it's alienating on that that supply side, right, of, of the, the producers of this music, while at the same time alienated on the consumer side as well, right, that like the people listening to the songs um, probably, you know, are also able to really kind of disconnect it from it being anything other than the result of perhaps one artist, right? The, the artist who I associate this song with, you know, they they're the producer and creator of it. Uh, and, and so, yeah, so it is this, this really efficient alienation machine, um, which does, of course, raise a lot of questions as well about what, what justice might look like, what an analysis of this might look like. And, and you know, you raise the question about boycotting. And I, I also saw a lot of um, discussion on, you know, a, a after the wrapped playlists were coming out and people were talking about it and talking about it in a more kind of critical um, way that, you know, as you were explaining, I saw a lot of people discussing, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm boycotting or, or I'm now uh, doing the work to try to build, uh, build back up my own personal collection of music, which, you know, mm -hmm. it, it probably means that you're putting it on iTunes, which has its own, <laughs> you it's know, own problems. Absolutely. Yeah, its own yes. problems. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and that's tough because what that ends up doing is, uh, you know, it does end up putting a lot of onus on, you know, boycotting as a strategy puts a lot of onus on individuals creating their own personal Spotify or their own personal playlist uh, and things like that. You know, and, you know, that's not to say people that's obviously how people did music for ages up until recently. But with the advent of Spotify and with its ubiquity and its kind of its position as a monopoly, the cultural consumer music industry, uh, it does make something like a boycott seem really, really hard and tough in the same way that something like, you know, boycotting other platforms, um, whether it's Uber or DoorDash or whatever, once it becomes this like essential service in your life, uh, which is what it's designed to be, uh, it, it becomes really difficult to turn away from that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think there is some. And it speaks towards all sorts of issues that are the ongoing debates about the, the, the limitedness and the efficacy or lack thereof of consumer boycotts, particularly when they're happening apart from, you know, the resistance of workers who are actually um, 
performing that service or making that product. Um, I, I think the way in which the internet and technology has transformed our lives over the past 30 or 40 years has thrown a lot of those sort of old Marxist chestnuts into uh, question, but I think that's one that remains pretty clear um, and pretty, pretty stable, if you will. If there were such a thing, and I, I, I struggle to figure out what this might look like, but if, if artists, if enough artists were, if, if their struggle with Spotify got to the point where it was public and everyone was talking about it, and then they were to ask everyone to boycott Spotify, I think it might have an effect. It might have a real effect. Uh, in the meantime, outside of that, specifically if you're doing like an individual boycott, like, and I guess I say this also just to like, you know, looking at politics through the lens of morality is incredibly, um, incredibly limiting. Um, and I don't think it actually delivers the type of empowerment that we, we want it to have. What's interesting to me is I think, um, you know, uh, people's willingness maybe to explore other models of how music is delivered. Um, that's what's interesting to me right now. Like, I, I, if people are saying, oh, I'm boycotting Spotify, um, well, okay, I'm like, well, then where are you going? Are you just building an, an iTunes playlist? Or maybe you going to Bandcamp, which is still a capitalist enterprise, but it's it provides far more of an actual avenue of direct communication between um, the artist and uh, the listener. And um, it, it, it also involves more actual active exploration on the part of the person who's sitting in front of the the Bandcamp app. Now, um, again, there's a limit to that because it is happening within the confines of capitalism, but it does go to show that the ubiquity of Spotify can be really deceptive. Um, there are other potential avenues and models through which we can use technology to reconsider the way in which we, we uh, engage with music and how, how it can once again be a more democratic presence in our lives. As someone who gets the majority of their music via Bandcamp, um, I don't necessarily boycott Spotify, but I don't use Spotify. For the most part, uh, I've always been the type of person that has, has purchased my music, and Bandcamp has been an easy option to do that. And especially as of late, I think for the past like five or six months now, the first Friday of every month, 100% uh, of the cost you pay for whatever music you get goes directly to the artist. So. I, instead of buying music sporadically, I just save everything up and buy it on that particular Friday. Now, you know, granted, I don't have the income that I used to, so I'm not, you know, spending $200 a month on music off of Bandcamp. You know, at, at least I'm getting some new stuff and, you know, dropping 40 50 bucks a month uh, into the pockets of actual artists, and it's not going to them getting $0.16 cents because into their album, you know, 25 times in two weeks. And that's, you know, the, the tough part there as well is that, you know, what, what makes Spotify, um, you know, and, and this kind of broader movement towards this, you know, Spotify-ication or what we, or we might also call it a kind of Netflix-ication or, so, you know, whatever uh, of, of, of entertainment um, is the fact that, like, what makes it so cheap and convenient for consumers is that it's, it's hugely subsidized off of investment, right? Capital investment. So, I mean, Spotify is a publicly traded corporation with a $53 billion valuation, right? That valuation is an investment in a rentier that's enclosing 
you know, in this case, music, you know, intellectual property in the in this in, in this case, music um, is enclosing it so that they can then control total access to that. Right. Like we don't know yet what Spotify's end game is going to be right because all of these, whether it's Netflix or Spotify or, or any of these platforms, as we've talked about a lot on TMK, the the end game is monopoly. It's a question of if they achieve that monopoly, and then it's a question of how do they change their business model once they have completely enclosed, uh, you know, a whole industry's worth of intellectual property. Once they become the uh, the essential mediator and gatekeeper to music or to uh, entertainment or to movies or TV or whatever. And we can see a lot of similarities. You know, if we look at the actual business model and the operations and the finances of a company like Spotify, um, we can see a lot of similarities with other companies like Netflix. So it's even something as much as like, you know, Liz Pelly, who's a writer, had a a great essay in The Baffler um, on the Spotify wrapped, you know, this kind of political economy of it. And in that essay, she quotes from a, uh, an anonymous full-time advocate for musicians um, who said, quote, Spotify wants us to share these wrapped metrics because it, it low-key encourages us all to think that these metrics are valuable or meaningful. These numbers say nothing about sustainability or accomplishment. Play count as a proxy for value is toxic. That emphasis that Spotify has on play count that as the as the kind of core data that it collects and then it and, and then it associates with value is very similar to um, as Ed and I talked about in our two part episode with Trash Future. Uh, Netflix does the same exact thing, right? It like hyper overinflates the play count or the view count of movies, movies that people have never seen, but or Netflix <laughs> claims or heard of, but Netflix claims have been watched a hundred million times, right? And the purpose there is that these these numbers are not meant for us. They're meant um, for investors. They're meant to show investors, you know, a hundred million people are watching Spencer Confidential. A uh, hundred million people are are playing this one song. That doesn't actually tell us anything about value. It doesn't tell us anything about the cultural impact, the personal impact uh, of these cultural products. What it does is it tells investors that this is a sound commodity for you to invest in and for us to gain a monopoly over. It is really concerning to see this pattern in the companies that call themselves tech companies really just like, I feel like tech more and more so becomes a signal for, okay, if you, you throw all the capital you've been sitting on at us and we will privatize something that is currently not cleanly an asset that can be squeezed out or traded or financialized or otherwise turned into a profit stream in a world where profit is harder and harder to come by, you know, like you said, Netflix, it's your, it's, it's the time you're spending in front of these things and in, in front of the movies, uh, it's with um, with Spotify, it's the music, with, uh, you know, DoorDash or Uber Eats, or uh, it's going to be the food uh, food delivery or an attempt to uh, privatize, you know, any part of the restaurant industry and delivery service that they can. With Uber in general, it's delivery, it's rides. You know, with each of these companies, they're trying to figure out ways in which they say, you know, human beings do all sorts of things. 
that we mistakenly believe should not have a price attached to them. And that the price not being attached to them makes them inefficient and sloppy and not properly evaluated, right? And if only we can add them to the market, then we can do things better. Then you can find what you really want to eat. Then you can find what you really want to uh, listen to, what you want to watch. And I think it also reminds me of like this kind of psychotic idea that was floating around um, and has been floating around around uh, free market fundamentalists about financializing nature and turning uh, soil and bees into assets with the idea being that we cannot be trusted to do it ourselves. We being like capitalists and financiers and industrialists. And so we have to create market incentives for people to do it when really it's like we're creating market incentives so that, that there can be like a orderly gold rush, right? And never mind what actually happens to the, to the asset itself. You know, I'm sure that if you commodify, um, if you commodify nature, some parts of it will stay safe, but also it will now raise those, this, I feel like it will raise the standard level of pollution that's allowed and extraction of resources that's allowed generally. And I similarly with music, right, to, and, and culture to have more and more of that as a commodity seeds ground to like um, having a baseline level propaganda, specifically capitalist propaganda embedded in it all the fucking time. And also these weird notions of how you're only valuable if you have hundreds of thousands of listens and you're only valuable if you can create like a product that can achieve that. And it's not valuable if you can communicate clearly a mental state or a point in your life or a story, you know, things that may not get hundreds of thousands of views or millions of views or accounts, but are still valuable in of themselves because they're amazing pieces of culture. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I mentioned earlier the sort of way in which capitalism has, has uh, through its division of labor, sort of has turned art, music, creativity into a distinct part of uh, daily life. When in fact, everyday creativity, well, human creativity should already be fully integrated into everything we do. Uh, that was one of the things that why you know Marx did actually say that the the existence of art as a distinct sector of daily life is a is a symptom of, of of the division of labor again being able to ask what would it be like if these things didn't have these fetters around them provides intensely radical and revelatory other ideas that follow from that the usefulness of human creativity isn't just in in how much it's able to create but in what effect that creativity has on other people's creativity I don't say that to, to sound to, to, to get into some you know very anti-materialist ways get, um, to look at art. In fact, I think what one of the things that Ernst Fischer, the, the uh, Marxist arts critic spoke about was the fact that in pre-class society, um, to a degree in feudalism, but certainly in pre-class society, creativity was needed in order for people to survive. Um, primitive communism, necessitated it. Now, this isn't to romanticize primitive communism, but it is to say that, like, the notion of creativity and democracy going hand in hand is a profoundly powerful one, I think. If we cover that up with everything both of you just said about the um, late capitalist notion that quantity is always necessarily quality, um, if we can start to look through that into the idea of into the idea of creativity as a, a, a necessary cornerstone of, 
a more democratic way of living, um, then we can start to actually see, like maybe start to ask the right questions, you know, about how we actually dismantle some of this stuff. Uh, dismantle and or expropriate as we need to. Is it going to happen in overnight? No, of course not. But precisely because it's so full spectrum, as the spectacle always is, um, being able to ask those questions about the things we don't see that aren't immediately apparent is um, more and more important, if you ask me. How a company like Spotify is also making demands on musicians as these kinds of like, you know, constantly precarious content producers. You know, it's not to say, obviously the life of an artist and musician has, has always been kind of seen um, as this precarious lifestyle or this precarious um, calling or career path or, you know, however we might want to frame it. That's not to say that what Spotify is doing is, you know, or what any of these platforms are doing is somehow a, a radical break or quote unquote disruption from what came before. But, <laughs> you know, we often say it's more about an, uh, an acceleration and an amplification of those kinds of conditions, right, of that um, of those exploitative relationships. You know, I, I think this is fully encapsulated in um, what I think it was last year or this year, who who can remember, but like recently the CEO of Spotify, I think it was, you know, basically told artists that they need to be producing like an album or two every single oh, year. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, like the problem yeah. is, is that they're not hustling and grinding enough, right? If you really, if mm -hmm. you want to be a musician, you need to be constantly, you need to be a content producer. You need to be a content machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The outcome will be that, you know, that musicians become the exact same thing as any other gig worker in, in the sense that, like, you need to be working on three different platforms 60 hours a week in order to um, make a subsistence living, right? Not to thrive, yeah. just to survive. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And, and I, I think that also throws up an interesting question where I, I remember, and this maybe is about 10 years ago, but being being part of some debates about, okay, are musicians working class as musicians? Um, you know, are, are they um, through and through proletarians? Um, and I think part, part of that is just because, like, you know, by old Marxist definitions, like, they've been traditionally a little bit more, like, you know, lower middle class in the ways that they can, not in terms of income, but in terms of, like, where their relation to, um, their position in the, the relations of production. I think, you're, Jathan, you're, the way that you compared it to gig workers is very, very telling um, because, you know, when you're on Spotify and getting paid for, um, for what little you're getting paid for each, each song, you're an independent contractor. But so are Uber drivers. So are DoorDash drivers. So are, and as we've seen with some of the unionization campaigns in those, those companies, um, the the notion of who is middle class or working class is to a certain degree down to what what the balance of class forces are, whether there's people in those workforces willing to actually fight to say, no, we are working class and we want our rights as workers. We don't just want to be, um, you know, scammed through this idea that we are um, just independent contractors. The Justice at Spotify campaign and the UMAW, I think, also is, is attempting to make that a, a similar intervention in that saying artists are workers. 
Um, and therefore, no matter how many supposedly groundbreaking algorithms you create, though as both of you said, that uh, as you all have said, um, the algorithm isn't all that particularly revelatory, um, which further highlights the fact that what do you have in Spotify without the musicians? Nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, which may be a, a, an overly stark, overly simplistic way to put it, but it's, it's absolutely true. So yeah, I, I am I incredibly excited to see like if other conversations open up about different ways for to use technology to actually make art a right again, um, to make music an art again, to make it a commons again. Uh, I think that there's those are, those are discussions that uh, you know we started to have like 25 years ago around all the Napster stuff, um, but of course Apple and all of the other um, all of the other players in the game figured out a way to game that, um, as Capital does. Now maybe the the pendulum might be swinging back a little bit, or at least in terms of the discourse that we need to have around this type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you said something there that, that is, is quite a radical statement in some ways, where you said, you know, artists are workers. You know, I think artists recognize themselves as workers for sure. I think the radical statement there is, uh, is everybody else recognizing artists as workers or and, and yes. the industry as a whole recognizing artists as workers, right? And again, there's the same parallels with... Um, you know, something like Proposition 22, right, where like the gig companies are able to legally say uh, gig workers are not actually employees, right? They are not workers um, in that sense that they are part of a, a working class, that they have solidarity, that they can unionize, that they have rights, you know. Um, and I, I think that there's the same exact movement uh, towards um, making artists out to not be workers as well, right? It's very much wrapped up into this idea as well of like, you know, oh, well, if you're doing what you love, then you'll never work a day in your life, right? Which oh, is... God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Which, of course, such which, a everyone here sees that for what it is, right? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. Such a reactionary framing and viewpoint, right? Mm -hmm. And one that is... Uh, you know, it's just pure propaganda for the interest of capital. Absolutely. Yes, yes, completely. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, I'm in California. I'm in Los Angeles. The way that Prop 22 has complete, it, it, it's very difficult to overstate how much of a setback that was for unionization efforts here in California. Because something to point out also is that written into the law, is in order to overturn it, it can't just be a simple 50% plus one vote in the state legislature. It has to be seven-eighths of the legislature have to vote to overturn that law, that all gig workers are, are independent contractors. 
So, which is insane, right? If you're going to right. actually, right. That, that wasn't talked to, yeah, that wasn't talked about in any um, uh, significant way, at least by the, the you know, the, by the, the likes of Uber and Lyft and all of them. Um, but yeah, that's the case. It, it's an intensely undemocratic, the way they went about it was, and that was the other thing. If you ever, if during the run-up and the campaign around Prop 22, if you ever took Lyft or Uber in California, one of the first things that would pop up after you called a, a ride hailer would say like, you know, vote, um, you know, vote, vote this way on, on Prop 22. Um, which is to say nothing of the way that uh, our, um, um, the, the way the drivers themselves were actually were, were propagandized around. I mean, it was it, it was intense the way that it fell down on them. What, the minute they would open their app to go drive during the day, it, it was basically a thinly veiled way of saying like, "Vote this way or you're fired." Um, yeah, it, it's it, it, it's it's very very difficult to to say um, just how how terrible the passage of twenty two is. Yeah. And it's not hard to imagine Spotify doing something very similar, right? That like, yeah. you know, by posting your song or your podcast or your content, whatever it is on our platform, you uh, cede all rights to representation or unionization, um, collective bargaining, you know, anything like that, right? Like this now just becomes a, a part of the terms uh, and, you know, the, the licensing agreement for using mm -hmm. uh, and, and posting on the platform. I don't get the sense that's out of, out of the question that they're going to start doing that soon. It's interesting because Spotify, they have yet to respond to uh, the UMAW's demands, uh, from what I, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, really? I, I don't think that... Surpri yeah. I'm surprised that I, they, they just ignored it. <laughs> yeah, they basically ignored it. But at the same time, no fewer than three companies, um, podcasting production companies that Spotify has acquired recently, the, the employees at those companies have either launched uh, unionization campaigns or they've... Uh, successfully voted and Spotify it, I, if I'm recalling correctly Spotify has um, at the very least responded publicly to them uh, the, the I think the three um, God one of the pump one of the companies is the Parcast um, po uh, podcasting network that Spotify just acquired the ringer is another and there's a third one whose names whose name escapes me right now um, but yeah, they've all voted to, to unionize the employees of those, company, uh, those companies. And Spotify has, I think in, in one of the cases, agreed to, to bargain in good faith. Now, whether they actually mean that, of course, we, you know, is another thing. But they've at least publicly acknowledged it. They haven't done it with the musicians' union yet, which is really concerning. I mean, I'm, I'm actually incredibly glad and very excited that Parcast and the rest are unionizing. That's actually a very, very big thing. Anytime you can you are able to openly illustrate the class structures and the class machinations and the class conflict within streaming services and within anything that's like high tech right now. Anytime you're able to do that and sort of puncture the bubble of tech libertarian utopianism, that's a good thing. Um, but it's really, really concerning that Spotify has yet to say anything about the UMAW. Uh, now, maybe that'll change in between when we're recording this and when the, uh, the episode goes live. Um, but yeah, th that's sort of the lay of the land we're talking about right now. Um, it looks like, which I think goes goes to show that, yeah, sort of sort of goes to prove your point, which is that it's not really all that far off until Spotify starts to say, okay, well, if you're going to be on here, 
here are the terms you need to agree to. You can't be part of a union. You can't be any of that stuff. It's all on the table right now. It's very disorienting. How long do you guys think it's going to be before Spotify forces ads on podcasts similar to the uh, YouTube model? YouTube has recently done where they're just putting ads on any, any creator's content, regardless of the creator's input. Um, what do you guys expect? Uh, are there going to be some Cato Institute ads on our podcast on Spotify? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't think it's far off, to be perfectly honest. I, I really don't see it as, as all that far off. I mean, maybe they might realize that that just might be a little bit too much. They might overplay their hand if they were to do it right now, but I don't see that as... Um, I don't see that as beyond their pale, unfortunately. And, you know, like, it, it sucks. Like, Locust Review, we do a podcast that's distributed through, through Spotify also. And, yeah, it's like, you know, we're all of us are open communists. It would fucking suck to all of a sudden have, uh, you know, ads for Chase Bank on there. Oh, God, you know, please. Yeah. Don't manifest that <laughs> shit. <laughs> I, I, you know. <laughs> this Machine Kills brought to you by SoftBank. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's it's been a tough time during the pandemic. Merchants, you know, and uh, and gas stations and stores have raised their prices by five to ten percent. That's why we're offering you the SoftBank card with two percent cash back. <laughs> yeah, God, Jesus Christ! Oh. I feel like every single that that has basically been especially the first like three months of the pandemic after lockdown started here in the US. Um, that was basically every ad. Um, like, Ed, you, you really aren't that far off. <laughs> I'm sure I don't need to tell you. That was basically every, these are, uh, God, just the scriptedness of it. The, it's like, we understand these are trying times, you know, this like simpering, spineless use of euphemism. For all of this because god forbid we should admit that we're staring into the goddamn abyss right now um but again that's and, that's and doing it, nothing it goes about back it to the, yeah right yeah and it's this it, but again it goes back to that same logic the logic of commodity the logic of spectacle the logic of what does it take to divorce the vast majority of us from participation in the historical process participation in making history and changing history um, and well, in the um, the age of you know completely technologized late capitalism, they it's an art that they're very very good at. Now that we've gotten through our one of the most optimistic uh, and <laughs> and and hopeful parts of this. Well, I am curious. You know, are you hopeful about prospects for usurping this cultural production system that is? insisting on you know feeding everything into uh the hands of like a few hedge funds and investment firms are you excited with like the uam with and the raising of discussion and awareness not only among you know music workers or culture workers like the capacity of an ability or a chance to organize but of the public that like oh these artists are uh getting screwed uh pretty thoroughly on these deals and not being able to make a living, um, much less even have their music heard in, in a lot of cases. I think it's going to take another generation, man, because you think like 20 years ago was Napster. I, you know, I don't want to age myself, but I was, <laughs> you know, I was 20 years old when Napster showed up. And, you know, up until then, like if there was music I wanted, I had to buy it or I had to, 
you know, borrow a CD or tape and just record it on cassette or, or hope that someone could like send me a mixtape with, you know, something I wanted on it. And then, and it just, it just opened Pandora's box, like further from there. It was like this expectation that music is supposed to be a free commodity. You know, I, I mean, I unfortunately fell victim to that too. And, you know, in the past 10 or 12 years of my life, I've been slowly recouping my music collection by rebuying not just digital, but physical copies of music that I, I took. But I don't, you know, I don't feel there's a lot of people that have that a love uh, for the art form of music that they would go back and do something like that. And I think it's going to take a generation of people being told that you have to work for exposure. Um, I think it's going to take a little while. I think it's going to take, you know, some type of a, I don't know if it's going to go through Spotify, but a sense of people just saying, look, you know, I love this music enough. Um, I'm going to do everything I can to support this musician and keep them putting music out. Optimism is always something that I think, as, as this year has shown us, optimism is something we need to be very careful with. Uh, um, what's the, uh, the thing that the comrades at Salvage say? Hope is precious. It must be, um, uh, oh God, not stockpiled. Uh, Anyway, but yeah, I think you you all get it. Uh, that I think that right now, definitely the deck is stacked against us big time. But I am sort of, I see optimism and hope as something different uh, right now. I think that there are moments like the fact that the UMAW is coming around, is is an organized presence, is taking its campaign seriously, um, is is a very hopeful sign. You were talking about the uh, the really excellent small journal called Salvage, and their line there is, uh, hope is precious, it must be rationed. Hope is precious, it must be rationed. Yes, that's it. I, I have an article coming out in that soon. I should have that um, in that journal soon. I should be should have that <laughs> slogan a lot more etched down to the back of my eyelids, to be honest. Uh, I'm amazed I forgot it. <laughs> yeah. Hope is precious, it must be rationed. Yes, and I think that's absolutely true. Um, right now, particularly in this in, in this kind of moment, um, but yeah, I think that um, I'm about the same age as Jeremy, uh, or at least I think we were coming into music right around the time that you know, like, or maybe like right before Napster became a big thing. And I think that yeah, yeah. Napster was uh, downloading a Deftones cover of a Smith song. Uh, <laughs> On, on dial-up, you know, yeah, right. at uh, 11.30 on a Friday night and waking up the next morning at 6 and it's still not being like, <laughs> right. completely download, yeah. downloaded. Or the download just stopped, things like that. Or, oh, God, Or, God yeah. forbid, your mom or dad would pick up the phone to make a call and, like, all six of my downloads, I'd just get, just get fucked, you know? <laughs> I remember this. <laughs> Another platform that we can talk about, I think we can kind of start ending the episode talking about this. I mean, this has been a great conversation about the, the this kind of platforms in the music industry and, you know, talking about supporting, you know, supporting musicians, big and large uh, or big and small, you know, other alternative platforms like Bandcamp, which offer a more kind of direct relationship with the musicians. You know, another one that obviously comes to mind is something like Patreon. You know, I've seen so many musicians and artists, you know, hopping on Patreon just to try to, you know, essentially build that that more direct, both personal and fiscal uh, relationship with 
a group of artists. You know, and I, I think that these kinds of platforms do offer an alternative way to get um, some support. But I, I think they're also plagued with the same kind of like power law distribution that we've seen in the music industry for forever, right? I mean, again, it's it's acceleration and amplification, right? Like what Spotify is doing, what Patreon is doing um, is not disrupting, but rather oftentimes reflecting the same kinds of conditions, right? Where it's like, you know, uh, just as you know, a handful of, of artists get the vast majority of view or plays on Spotify. Um, the same goes with Patreon. The same goes with Bandcamp. You know, and that's always been the case with, with buying music as well, right? That, like, when you were buying albums, you know, some some people would really hit it big. And then there was a huge, a huge uh, long tail of people that, you know, maybe only had, you know, five patrons or only had a few album sales. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's that's very true. Um, the the interesting thing, and I, I I would like to see this conversation pulled out a little bit more. I think people like Mark Fisher and now folks like um, uh, Matt Kolkohun, the Zeno Goth, are starting to talk about it more. Well, actually, the the, uh, the Ursula Le Guin quote that uh, you guys started one of your most recent episodes off with that famous uh, National Book Award speech. Uh, that she made not long before she passed away, where she talks about the way in which a book as a work of art is always in conflict with its status as a commodity. That's a friction that's always there, and I think it's very much the same with music. Uh, um, Walter Benjamin, when he wrote uh, Unpacking My Library, he was getting at that exact feeling, that people actually get something more and something that's a little bit more intangible from a work of art, a film, um, a song, than just the exchange value of it. Um, and that's th that also you know, leads back to what we were talking about earlier, or what, what I mentioned earlier, that what does it mean to actually have a democratic relationship between artist and, and audience? Um, and I think that's, that's true in music right now, and I think that's part of the reasons, and again, I, I'm very cautious about this. I don't wanna just like, blindly celebrate all this stuff or ignore its contradictions but the the boom in vinyl um over the past decade or so the fact that vinyl is again uh, an increasingly popular way for people to to connect with their music i think shows that people people want something out of their relationship with music that they can't get from spotify um that they can get from bandcamp because you can you know directly purchase a vinyl album from an artist that you just listen to on the streaming service. Again, it's sort of like, I think people do want a sense of, this is why, even though I'm not optimistic, I'm hopeful because I think that tension um, is always there, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Uh, and I think that's why people are you know, buying vinyl more, why cassettes are making a, a return right now, um, which is in and of itself in, uh, interesting because prior to the 1990s, um, in the 1980s, cassettes were seen as the, the main threat to the music industry, right? Home recording. It's one of the reasons why the Dead Kennedys and Alternative Tentacles, um, you know, that like on their cassettes, the album would just be on the first side. The second side, it would say on the back, um, you know, uh, home taping is killing the record industry. Uh, we've left this side blank so that you can do your part. You know, th that, so the fact that we're sort of 
you know, maybe re-entering that feedback loop right now comes with its own contradictions, and certainly a tape is still a commodity, a vinyl record is still a commodity, but the way that people interact with it is not always controllable. Um, even no matter how much you, <laughs> no matter how many algorithms you impose on it, there's always some sort of way in which you can, you know, twist it back around, tweak it, make it a little bit more um, ecumenical, a little bit more egalitarian yeah i mean that makes me think as well and you know here we're uh i'm kind of dating myself in my own music uh interest as well the system of a down album uh still this album right i mean oh yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. so very 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 similar kinds of back to yeah great yeah, throwback great throw back to, to Abby hoffman right there Exactly. And, you know, to, to new metal, uh, which has a special place in my <laughs> own heart as well. Uh, <laughs> Just as long as it's not Limp Biscuit, then we're fine. Um. Well, <laughs> we won't get into that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I, I, I am absolutely I, I'm not a huge fan of new metal, but I am absolutely I will absolutely be the first to say it gets an unjustly bad rap. Um, so to speak, from, from back in the 90s, early on. There was um, far worse music that came out in the late 90s than Limp Biscuit. I mean, that was, yeah. it was the just, era just, of just <laughs> awful earworms. Just to bring this all uh, to the beginning of the episode, my uh, apparently my most played song uh, for 2020, according to, according to Spotify Wrapped, uh, was Trash by Korn. So, you know, I, I, <laughs> it's like, like I said on Twitter, you know, I'd like to say that I was just really committing to the bit that 2020 is a trash year. Um, but, uh, you know, that <laughs> mine had to be, um, I shall be released by Nina Simone because of the amazing scene in which it appears in good Lord bird. And I was so obsessed with, uh, with the show and the soundtrack. So I just played it all the Such time. Such a good show. So I'm hoping we'll be released, hopefully, from the hell and misery that is yeah. uh, capitalism. <laughs> just to bring us to a close on this episode, I mean, and, and just this whole discussion, you know, as we've talked a lot about on TMK, that really, you know, the what capitalism has succeeded at doing so much and what just and what this iteration of digital capitalism or platform capitalism or Silicon Valley or whatever um, has really succeeded at doing is offering a, a pittance of, uh, of convenience to consumers in return for just completely um, accelerating all of these exploitative relationships and all, but, but then trapping us into them, right? I mean, again, that's the purpose of the monopoly. It's a monopolization of not only an industry, but also of our imagination to imagine that it could be different. And that, that's what makes something like, uh, you know, boycotting, you know, Spotify or any kind of individual backlash or, or outrage about Spotify, about the ways in which it, it uh, alienates music, it exploits artists, and, you know, and, it, and it treats consumers as well as advertising commodities. It, it, what, what makes it really difficult is 
to be like, you know, how, how could it be any different, right? What, what, could, what could a, uh, a, a communalized version of Spotify look like, right? What could a service that is publicly, a publicly invested, uh, a socially beneficial version of Spotify look like? You know, is, is it as simple as, um, uh, again, just, you know, ensuring that the distribution of, of income goes towards the producers and artists of music? Just could you s- speculate a little bit, Alex, about, you know, what would something, you know, while, while the justice at Spotify, I think, is a really important first step towards uh, just trying to claw back some kind of dignity, some kind of equity in this system. You know, movements around uh, considering artists as workers uh, is really important for just getting really clear on the position of artists within a a capitalist political economy, within a, a capitalist industry, uh, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff is really important as well. But, like, what would more radical steps look like towards a, uh, an alternative Spotify? You know, because it is, it's undeniable that streaming and having all of that music at your fingertips is immensely convenient. And it does have this kind of democratization potential as well, whether it's Spotify or it's SoundCloud, you know, and, and, and people being able to do DIY music uh, in a cheaper way, put it out there for people to hear. I mean, this gets into the ethos as well um, that we'll talk about in the premium episode around the kind of radical politics and countercultures and like punk and hip hop and folk music. It had this kind of DIY uh, ethos to it that something like SoundCloud you would expect would actually be uh, you know really beneficial that that these artists would look at that and they have right contemporary artists have looked at that as a as a way of kind of democratizing um, music production but how do we disentangle that from the insane exploitation and extraction um, that that all of these companies and platforms have baked into their models. I am a believer that um, the problems that art faces are not going to be solved within art. Um, I think we need movements within the arts and within music and you know among podcast workers and everything like that, uh, people who work at production companies. We need all of that, but we also just need a generalized upsurge against the way in which these types of forces have subjugated our lives. I, I, I think the effectiveness of a movement just of artists within the art world is going to be limited in what they can actually impact if there aren't also gig workers that are part of it, teachers that are part of it, if they're not making connections with movements for housing rights, movement for black lives, uh, or any other uprising. I think a generalized upsurge is only really going to be the way that um, the conditions are created to make something really take hold. That being said, that's not just to say that, that artists or culture workers need to just sit on our hands and wait for that type of stuff to come about. I think that I think artists are actually in a very unique position to amplify um, post-capitalist desire in many ways, to, to make plain to not only the way in which capitalism can't meet our needs, but to amplify the way in which it can't even meet the needs that it creates. Um, now, what I mean by that is, you know, 
culture under capitalism is used to create desires for things that aren't there that always are, you know, um, just consumerism masked as fulfillment. But we want to be fulfilled. Um, and even a lot of bad songs are able to actually point to that. So I think artists are in a way to help us sort of lean into the desires that we have, the impulses we have, that can't actually be truly liberated within capitalism. So I, I, I think, you know, being able to map some sort of some sort of way out of capitalist realism right now is urgently needed, and um, artists can play a very specific role in that. Now, what does that mean for alternative new streaming services and things like that? I don't know. I simply don't know, but um, I, I don't think that any of them are really going to be able to... I, I don't want to be cynical when I, when I say this, but like Bandcamp, for as equitable as it is, also still operates within... Uh, the very chaotic landscape of capitalism generally. So when does that other shoe drop? When does it become less equitable uh, to participate in that platform? And I think that's why it's in... Um, yeah, and the workers hate it, exactly. You know, a lot of people who work at Bandcamp don't like working there. Why? Because you're working in capitalism. This is still... This is why, as uh, what I said earlier is true, that the problems just of art and cultural expression can't be solved just by figuring out better ways to culturally express ourselves. Those better expressions had to be part of generalized movements for, um, for justice and equitability in all of our daily lives. Um, and I think even within the, the confines of capitalism, that is when you start to see, you know, spaces pop up that are more democratic. Um, you know, like ways that, uh, that, that's when you can, we need to talk about things like why are there so few spaces in which people can freely create without the strictures of the market falling down on them? A part of it is the, is the simple fact that, you know, cultural centers have been shut down in most working class neighborhoods in the U.S. progressively over the past 40 years. And that's also part of a general neoliberal trend, you know, that, that, that goes hand in hand with the, the crushing of unions and um, the privatization of daily life. Uh, the, the attacks on education. We need those spaces back. Um, and I think then we can start to see alternative. Um, as we start to fight for those spaces and win them back, then we can start to see, um, you know, we can start to see alternative models um, pop up. The irony of Obama's playlist is screaming at my face right now with the <laughs> Bruce Springsteen song. You know, it's just... Uh, this man has written music about everything that you just talked about for like the past two minutes about the cultural centers of most places in the world. You know, music for the most part comes from culture that is inherent within a lot of working class society. The, the fact that you have Bruce Springsteen on playlists when you're clearly a, a centrist and probably a Reagan Republican really by that consensus it's just, I find it fucking ironic. Well, people have been misappropriating Springsteen for a very long time. I mean, you mentioned Reagan, <laughs> and he probably is the most infamous example of that, when he was born in the USA to campaign um, campaign for his, his in, in his re-election, uh, campaign for re-election in 84. And, you know, Springsteen had to come out and say, like, uh, no, <laughs> this is not, this is not what I was writing about. You know, I was... Pointing the yeah, finger it's, at people exactly like you. 
it seems like, I mean, every election cycle, right, there's some musician that's having to come out and tell some politician, uh, please stop using my song at your at your rallies or whatever. But, you know, that that's it's not surprising and it's to be expected, um, you know, and something else that we haven't really touched on. And I think that there's just so much more to talk about more more than we can get into in this particular episode um, is also just the 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 gutting of uh, arts and cultural uh, funding and you know in the government as well as a service um, that the government uh, is supposed to be seen as providing support for um, you know that's been that's been gutted and and you know of course there's also all kinds of examples of that funding being used in really bizarre ways right I think the most recent uh, example is the is you know Grimes getting a uh, $90,000 arts subsidy um, from a Canadian mm-hmm. uh, nonprofit <laughs> associated with, you know, the Canadian government, right? So it's like, all right, it's like, is Grimes really the, the best recipient of a $90,000 <laughs> arts grant? Um, uh, you know? No! No, she has a kid with <laughs> Elon Musk, kidding. for fuck's sake. Jesus. <laughs> $90,000 to a subpar Bjork cosplayer <laughs> well, well, again, it's not it's not even about a cultural uh, crit- uh, critique or judgment, aesthetic judgment there as well. It's about a uh, a judgment of equity. Right. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. what 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 are you going to do with that ninety thousand dollars? Like, you know, put a new rug in one of your living rooms in one of your mansions. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the number of musicians in Canada that have not been able to tour, make any money during COVID and then they just give the money to her. Yeah, the frustration should be at that, but at the same time, there's there's better musicians in Canada that are making music right now. Yeah, you know. You know, yeah. uh, Grimes is also, I feel like, you know, now that Cyberpunk 2077 is upon us and her music is like a key part of the soundtrack, there's going to be more people with these uh, five-figure grants that are going to be like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah the millionaire. Let's uh, let's ho- let's hook her up with uh, <laughs> with some of the money that we're yeah. going to deprive everybody else. Again, unsurprising, right? Because capital attracts more capital, right? It, it's a perpetual accumulation. Is that once once you have it, it just like a magnet. It just keeps coming at you. I think this has been a really great conversation for me. Again, if there's like one big takeaway from from everything that we've talked about, it is that statement that artists are workers. It's not even about oh, the artists need to have class consciousness as workers. I think they have that in spades. Um, I I think it's about uh, that recognition amongst the general public, the listening audience, but also within the industry itself, right, which is going um, through platforms like Spotify, um, through, uh, you know, similar, whether it's Netflix or whatever, right, like, these 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 industries are working so hard to just even strip that label of worker from these producers, these hustlers. Yeah, I agree. I think if there's any, I guess if there's any takeaway from this, it's artists of the world unite and unite with other workers. I think that will bring us to the end of this episode of This Machine Kills. 
Um, you know, we will be getting a lot more into in the premium episode, which you can find uh, later this week on patreon.com slash this machine kills. Speaking of Patreon and platforms like that to support, uh, you know, content producers, uh, podcasters and so on. Um, we'll be getting a lot more into the cultural politics, the radical politics um, in music and countercultures and genres like punk and hip hop and folk music. There's a lot more that we're going to get into around, um, yeah, the kind of cultural, the, the politicization of culture um, through music. Thanks again, Alex. Is there anything you would like to plug? Where can people find your work and find you? So people can find me, um, of course, I'm on Twitter. Uh, Ubu Pomplamoose uh, is uh, my, my handle. And uh, also I have a blog, just alexanderbillet.com. And, uh, you know, just keep an eye on Locust Review. Keep an eye on Jacobin. Uh, like I said, I'm going to have an article coming out soon in Salvage, another one in the L.A. Review of Books. Uh, so I'm kind of all over the place. Just uh, follow me on Twitter and we can go from there. Awesome. And we'll throw all those links in the episode description. So thanks again, Alex. And we will see all of y'all uh, in the premium episode later.